Father, we can say as your children, truly majestic is your name in all the earth. You are worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise by all creation forever and ever. You are that holy and that good and that gracious and that merciful. I pray, Father, during this time by your Spirit, you would overwhelm us with these truths. That you would show us your majesty. You would show us the love of Christ. You would show us the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And as we gaze upon you for the next 45 minutes and we hear your word preached, Lord, draw us to Christ. Draw us to the cross that we might be a people on mission for Jesus. Father, we are surrounded by those still dwelling in darkness. It was only by your grace and mercy that you called us out. If we know your Son, we were in the darkness. You brought us to Him. You brought us to the light. And now we dwell in His kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we would not be satisfied in moving through the rest of this life as the world does. But we would want each and every day to make our lives count for your glory. I'm so thankful for this passage and the recounting of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, how you opened his eyes, how you've opened our eyes, and then called us to share the gospel that other eyes might be opened to. I pray, Lord, you would do that. Do that for the sake of this church. Do it for the sake of this community in which we lived. Certainly for our family and friends and all those that we know that still dwell in the darkness. We know their end, Father, and it is horrific. We know what they're missing in not knowing Christ. I pray you would press it upon us this morning. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would cause a real, substantive, permanent change in each of us. That we might walk in holiness. That we might proclaim the gospel. And that we might participate in this great ingathering of your elect from the four corners of the earth. Do that, Father, I pray for your glory. Bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Preaching when you pray. Kirk and I had a chance to go down to the Southern Baptist Convention a couple weeks back. And I found it really interesting, the number of people who were preaching when they were just giving reports. Uh, one of the presidents from the seminaries, he was giving a report of their seminary, he preached the whole thing. And I turned to Kirk, I go, I guess when you preach, you just got to preach. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with that. Hopefully that the proclamation of the gospel coming through a sermon is worthy of that type of energy and worthy of your receiving it with such uh, power as well. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. Um, you're here because God ordained you to be here. This was a sovereignly decreed day for you to be here, for this message to be preached, for me to preach it, and for you to receive it. And so I ask that God would be gracious with us to do just that, that we don't just sit and listen and leave unchanged, but be changed permanently in Christ. Amen? All right, so if you, if you have not done so, please let's turn our attention to the book of Acts chapter 26. Um, as we're looking at the Apostle Paul continuing in his journey on to Rome. Uh, if you remember, Paul ended his third missionary journey. He went to Jerusalem with an offering for the, the church that was experiencing a famine. And when he got there, he was received by some. But while worshiping in the temple, he was dragged out by an angry mob. They almost killed him. He was rescued by Lysias, the tribune. And, uh, and after they found out there was a plot to take his life, Lysias wisely sent him off to Caesarea under the protection of Governor Felix, and where he gave a, a brief uh, response as a witness and then spent two years uh, in Roman custody in Caesarea. And so we had to pick up our story here. Felix left office and Governor Festus, as you know, he took office and uh, he was not okay with a Roman citizen being in Roman custody for two years without having a fair trial. And so Festus not only wants to deal with Paul, but he wants to gain favor with the Jews. And so he asked Paul, do you want me to send you back to the Jews? The Jews were plotting, obviously, to kill him again. Um, and Paul says, no, I want to I go to Caesar. I want to go to Rome. And he had that right as a citizen, 
a Roman citizen, to appeal to Caesar, to which Festus said, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you shall go. And so that's where we are. We're, we're in this, the hall of Herod, and Festus has gathered he gathered King Agrippa II, Bernice, Gentiles, the Jews who had accusations against Paul. And they're all gathered there because Festus has a little problem on his hand. He can't send Paul off to Rome to be tried before Caesar without charges. And so he's gathered this, this large gathering of people to do that. In fact, he said this to King Agrippa in verse 26, the previous chapter. He said, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him, speaking of Caesar. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Very unreasonable and likely costly for Governor Festus if he had done that. He needed charges to go with Paul to go to Rome. So we pick up the story here in Herod's former palace, before this grand audience, King Agrippa II, his sister Bernice, Festus is there, likely some of the ruling Gentiles, and we know the Jews who had come up from Jerusalem to make their charges against the Apostle Paul. And what he gives here, he gives his testimony, it's very similar, it parallels actually very, very closely to the testimony he gave in Acts chapter 22 when he was speaking before the angry mob that tried to kill him. Um, This is actually the third iteration of his conversion experience by Dr. Luke in the book of Acts. And so we're not going to repeat, hopefully you remember the two previous sermons pertaining to it. We're not going to repeat it word by word, but I would like to highlight a couple distinctives that come out in this briefer testimony of his conversion. Um, Distinctives that I believe we will find necessary for our faith and walk in Christ too. And that is the absolute necessity of God in Christ through the Spirit opening your eyes that you might not only see, repent, believe, and be saved and have a real hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then go and share the gospel that we might see the eyes of the lost in our mission field opened too. In other words, if God does not open your eyes and unite you to Christ, regardless of your hope of the resurrection, it is in vain. He must do that great work, and he does for his glory. So as we examine our passage this morning, I I want us to examine our own hearts and I want us to consider deeply the hope that we have in the resurrection and whether or not it's founded in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ. And I'd like to do that by considering three things. One, a right hope, not a new hope, Star Wars fans. A right hope, number two, the wrong convictions, and number three, a new commission. A right hope in the resurrection Wrong convictions that we think we have the resurrection. And three, the new commission that we're on if, in fact, we've been saved by grace. You ready? The theme of the sermon is this. Open eyes seek to open the eyes of others. Eyes that have been opened by Christ will seek and strive to open the eyes of others. Point number one, a right hope. Look at verse one. Acts 26, verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. Before this grand gathering in the former hall of Herod the Great, the apostle Paul raises his hand and he begins to speak. Now Paul did not have to as a Roman citizen. He did not have to respond to this. He could have remained quiet. He was going to go to Rome now no matter what. But Paul, before Agrippa and Bernice and those who had gathered, Paul's greater interest was not his own freedom, but the spiritual freedom of all those who were blind and in bondage in that hall. It was Paul's desire, and so he did, to turn those proceedings in that great hall amongst those who were blind into a church. And Paul would ascend the pulpit, and he would preach a risen, a crucified, risen Jesus Christ. Because his hope was not in his own freedom, it was the salvation of all of those he was preaching to. And he begins with thanksgiving and an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Look at verse 2. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So if you remember, King Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He's a Jew. And so he knows about their customs and their, their, their controversies and all that surrounds the Jewish culture. But he was also, he was also, he lived like a Roman. 
And so he knew Roman law. And so Paul is actually very thankful here. He said, I can bring my case to you because I've had charges against me that supposedly violate Jewish law and some violate Roman law. And who better, King Agrippa, than you to listen to my defense? And so he brings his defense. And he begins, as you would expect Paul to begin, he begins with the resurrection because that's the primary offense. That's the primary charge the Jews bring against the apostle. Look at verse 4. He said, my manner of life from youth spent from the beginning among my own nation, Tarsus, and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So Paul said, listen, I'm no secret to anybody. People know who I am. They know I was raised a Jew. I, I've lived like a Jew. Not only that, Paul says, I was part of the uber-Jewish religious I was part of the sect of the Pharisees, those of us who believe not only in the written law, but the oral traditions too. If there's anybody who's going to be claimed a true Jew, Paul says, it was going to be me. That's how I lived my life. Look at verse 6. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain and the, as they earnestly worship night and day. That hope, of course, is the hope of the resurrection. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees, like most Jews, believed in that, that day of the Lord when God would come again in glory, he would raise the living and the dead, and he would resurrect all to either eternal life or eternal judgment. That was a fundamentally Jewish teaching. And so Paul's standing here saying, listen, the same promise that God the Father made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same promise that all 12 tribes have worshipped God in hope of this resurrection from the dead, it's not a heresy, it's not a strange doctrine, it is Jewish through and through. And so Paul says, he says at the end of verse 7, and for this hope, Paul says, I am being accused, I'm accused by Jews, O king. In other words, he's saying, this is insane. Jews who hope in the resurrection are accusing me, a Jew, of teaching the resurrection, which has been part and parcel of the Jewish faith for over 2,000 years. In other words, Paul is making a claim to the insanity of the accusations made against him. And then he does something fascinating in verse 8. He then turns to the Gentiles. So he's arguing before King Agrippa and the Jews, listen, this is the promise God made to our people for centuries. It's right to believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life eternal life to come. And then he turns to the Gentiles and he says this. Remember, he's got a captive audience, Jew and Gentile both. Verse eight, he said, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So to King Agrippa, he, he talks about the promises of God and to the Gentiles, he appeals to God himself. He says, if God is God, and this is a simple argument, if God is God and he is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He is the giver and taker of all living things, not just people, but all living things. Then certainly, Paul says, it's within God's power to raise the dead if he so decrees. Now, that's a simple argument. In fact, it's irrefutable. Paul says, believing in the resurrection is not incredible or unbelievable merely because it's extreme. And it is extreme. Now, the teaching is simple, that, that when you die and you go into the grave, that when Christ comes again in glory, your body will be raised from the dead and you will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ and you will be given an eternal body, one made to either worship God forever or one made to experience the pain and suffering of damnation forever. Paul says just because it's extreme doesn't mean that it's not possible and certainly does not mean that it's ridiculous if it is God who is doing the work. Not impossible for God. Certainly not contrary to the character and nature of God. God is life. God loves mankind. God hates death. And so we would argue, I think it would be unreasonable to conclude that as part of God's redemptive plan, there wouldn't be the resurrection of the dead. That seems more unreasonable to me in light of the teachings about who God is in his sacred word. More incredible to think that the resurrection is not part of God's plan. And I do believe, my beloved, that's one of the reasons in part that so many today, even in this supposedly secular age where we don't believe that God exists, so many believe in life after death. It's in our DNA. We're image bearers of God. We know we're supposed to live forever and therefore we hope in it even if we don't believe in God. 
the hope of some form of life after death. The hope of some form of resurrection. It's a universal hope. It has been historically. It has been cross-culturally. And it even is today. Did you know this, my beloved? That in a recent poll done by Barna, 8 out of 10 Americans, 81%, fully believe, fully believe in life after death. Did you believe that? Do you believe that? In this secular age, in the South Bay, 8 out of 10 Americans. Another 9% said they're not sure but they hope so. They're not quite sure, but they hope so. That means only one out of every 10 adults surveyed said there is no life after death. My beloved, that's an extraordinary statement for your mission field. 90% of the people that you know, 90% of your coworkers, 90% of your neighbors and family, 90% believe there's life after death. They believe there is a something for them. And they believe that because God made them in their image They are hardwired to believe that. And the only reason that we don't have that is because of the entrance of sin back in Genesis chapter 3. The problem of sin, which is the problem, the problem for all mankind. One of the reasons that we have a universal hatred for death is because we know, we know, the staunchest atheist knows in his heart of hearts he was created to live forever and therefore he hates death. And it's right to hate death. Sin came in and separated us from God, separated us from eternal life, and therefore there's this universal longing, this desperate attempt to escape death every turn. It's evidence, my beloved, I believe, in how hard we fight to stay alive, is it not? The number of people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and they will put themselves through months or years of treatment not to die. We hate it because we were made to live forever. But I believe this is also evidence in our daily lives. How we are in a perpetual state, your daily lives, you're in a perpetual state of trying to transcend the sin of this world. When you're lonely, what do you do? You seek companionship. When unfulfilled, you seek some type of fulfillment, a new toy, some entertainment, a degree or success. When you're depressed, you seek joy. When you're engaged in evil, you seek to justify your evil. When poor, you seek to be rich. Even our daily lives reveal our desperate attempt to transform, to transcend the sin of this world, to rise above it. Far from incredible and far from unbelievable, Paul rightly argues that the Jews, and I would say every single person, knows that there is life after death. And therefore, that is a right hope. It is a good hope that desire to transcend the effects of sin forever. It's right. So the problem, Paul says, it's not that this idea of the resurrection is foolish or even strange to the Jewish teaching. He argues this. He said, the problem is that that hope doesn't transcend into it actually happening. You can hope in the resurrection, as Paul did as a Pharisee, and still have all the wrong convictions that lead to death and not life. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the wrong convictions the wrong convictions. You can have the right hope and the wrong convictions and it will not be eternal life for you. Paul says in verse 9, look, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And so the Apostle Paul wisely identifies himself with the crowd. Many of those who were there listening to him were hostile to Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, listen, I was just like you. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was uber-religious, a super-Jew. And yet I was blind. He said, I did not see the truth of God. I did not see the truth of Jesus Christ. In fact, not only did I not see it, I actively worked against God. I went after Christ, and I thought it was good, Paul said. I I went after, Paul said, I went after the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who dies, if he believes in me, will not die. Paul says, that's the one I was going after. I have my hope in the resurrection, and I was trying to persecute and put to death the one who gave me that hope. And he did it all in the name of God. He persecuted and had Christians put to death in the name of God. He was passionate and dead wrong. Look at verse 11. He even said, I went, I went up beyond Jerusalem. 
I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. Paul actively tried to get Christians to recant their faith. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul says, you want to persecute me for believing in Christ? I'm the poster child of that. Paul said, nobody's done it better than me. Look at verse 12. Paul says, in this connection, in this connection of the persecution of Christians outside of Jerusalem, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Verse 13, at midday, O king, so he's speaking to Agrippa still, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. They all saw it. And so Paul here, he gives a a briefer description of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And one of the things that he highlights, or Dr. Luke chooses to highlight here, is Christ as what? A light from heaven brighter than the sun. Right, so he's magnifying the fact that in spiritual darkness, we cannot see God. Paul lived in spiritual darkness and therefore persecuted Christ. He persecuted the church. But then Christ came, the light of God, and he revealed himself and the truth of God and the gospel to him. And then he heard this voice from the light. Look at verse 14. And when we had fallen to the ground, Paul and all the others, they fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus said to Paul, did you notice that? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church? Why are you putting uh, those who believe in me to death? Why are you, not why are you putting them in prison? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Christ is able to say this, and you know this, because he is intimately and permanently united with all those who have put their faith in him. He was able to say that. He was able to say, this is my body, the church is my body, and therefore whatever was done to even the least of these, Jesus said, is done to me, good or bad, because of his unity with the church. Now that truth would become great, a great comfort to Paul as he suffered for the sake of the gospel. But on the road to Damascus, Paul hearing that, it was a terrifying statement. Jesus is the one who was able to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus is the one the prophets have spoken to for centuries. Jesus, my beloved, is the one that fulfilled God's promise when God said, I will resurrect Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and my people. It was Christ Christ is the one who made the resurrection possible, and yet it was Jesus, the resurrected reigning king, that Paul was persecuting, that Paul was going against. Verse 14 again, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Words that would have cut directly to the apostle's heart. And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You say, what's a goad? (laughs) A goad's a, it's a sharp stick, a long, sharp stick. And it was actually used to, to poke the back of an oxen that was tilling a field or working in the field. It was sharp, and it was intended to quicken their pace when they would start to slow down in the afternoon sun. But oftentimes when the, the farmer would poke the oxen, the oxen would kick back in rebellion, right? No one likes to get poked. If somebody poked you with a stick, you'd kick back too, But what they didn't realize is the oxen kicked back. They would sometimes hit the goad and cause injury to their leg. They would cause further injury, further bleeding. It was a proverbial saying. Actually, it was a Greek saying, and it meant something like this, resisting one's destiny or fighting against the will of the gods because the Greeks were polytheistic. So Jesus was saying this to Paul. Listen very closely. Paul, Paul, by persecuting me, you're fighting against God's will for you. By persecuting me, Jesus said, you're fighting against God's will for you, not only to be saved and for the hope of the resurrection that you have as a Pharisee to become a reality, but he's saying to Paul, for you to become the servant and the witness that you've been ordained to be. Galatians chapter one, God set you, speaking of Paul, apart from your mother's womb to do what? You know, to preach my name, Christ says, to preach my name amongst the Gentiles. God had ordained before Paul was ever born to become the apostle to the Gentiles, to preach the good news to those who had never heard it before. This was God's plan for Paul. So even though Paul thought he was serving Yahweh, 
by persecuting the church, he was actually kicking against the goads. He was bringing himself injury by not submitting and following God. And so Paul's revealing to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and all the Jews and Gentiles that had gathered that you can be passionate for God and be dead wrong about God. Did you hear that, my beloved? You can go and go to church and you can read your Bible and you can participate in all the studies and the ministries and be dead wrong about God. Paul proves that here. In persecuting the church, Paul thought he was serving God. He thought he was serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel when in fact all his zeal was doing was persecuting Christ himself, the resurrection and the life. It was a it was a brutally truthful confession before an unfriendly crowd. The transparency of Paul's heart here is overwhelming to me. But his, his desire was to cut them to the heart. He wanted to take them and say, I used to be just like that, and then I saw Christ, and then I saw the light. In other words, Paul was, he was striving not for his own freedom, but their freedom. He was striving for them, for all those who were there who were blind, that they might, through the gospel, see and be saved. For the believer, I believe we must ask ourselves why we so frequently kick against the goads. Why do we bring injury to ourselves by knowingly and willfully breaking God's righteous laws? Why do we do that? Why do we reject the very specific purposes that God has ordained for you, Paul was not unique. You've been ordained before the foundations of the world, specifically gifted to serve God in a particular way. So Jesus would say to you, why do you kick against the goats? Why do you resist your purpose in life? We know it brings injury. We know it brings injury to ourselves and to those that are around us. So when you refuse, my beloved, to have, I want you to listen with all your might here because I was very convicted going through this with myself. When you refuse to have intimate, accountable relationships in the body of Christ, you come and you're around, but you don't have those relationships. When you remain isolated as a Christian, you're kicking against the goads and harming yourself. When you do that. When you treat the Lord's day like any other day, or you treat the Lord's day like your day, either coming in late, leaving early, not engaging the body of Christ, not truly worshiping with the body of Christ, you're kicking against the goads. When you neglect the command, the very simple command to make disciples, to be discipled, you're kicking against the goads. When you neglect to feed on God's word daily and to spend time with God in prayer, because you want to or think you should do other things. You're kicking against the goats. You're injuring yourself. You're blooding yourself. When you refuse to intentionally and thoughtfully serve one another but remain steadfastly committed to serving yourself, your wants, your schedule, your goals above others, you're kicking against the goads. When you knowingly put people or possessions or passions above Christ, when you serve any idol of any kind, you're kicking against the goads. My beloved, when you refuse to use all the gifts and talents that God has given you to edify this church for the glory of God, to expand the kingdom beyond these walls, when you do that, you are neglecting your ministry, the call to ministry, and you're kicking against the goads. You are blooding yourself. Why do that? Why would any sane person saved by grace kick like this. We get the oxen. Oxen aren't that bright. You're made in the image of God. We know better. Maybe we do this because like the drug addict or the alcoholic, we know it's wrong, but our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak. Maybe. And so we just keep kicking. Maybe we've yet to feel the pain and suffering that comes from rebellion against God. We haven't tasted that that spike in the back leg that hurts so much or maybe foolishly we think we can get away with it maybe we think you know what it's okay if i rebel right now god is gracious he'll just keep covering my willful unrepentant sin whatever our thinking jesus was right listen it's hard it's hard for you it's hard for the church and it's hard for the kingdom when you kick against the goads it's hard 
Jesus spoke the truth. Our refusal to live as God has called us to live, our refusal to do what God has called us to do in each of us, it's not only painful, but if you remember from our study in Hebrews, it's dangerous. Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Then he says in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's not only painful, my beloved, it is dangerous to kick against the goads, to kick and rebel against Christ. So Paul's testimony before Agrippa, he says, listen, it's right to hope in the resurrection, but simply hoping in the resurrection doesn't mean you're going to attain to it. Paul hoped in the resurrection as a good Pharisee, and he was destined for hell. His convictions were 100% wrong. How wrong? He was persecuting Christ. But you can't get any more wrong than that, to persecute the living God. I want to give you one more point, and I'll close. Paul reveals how the Lord opened his eyes and put him on a new mission. Right? He went from hoping in the resurrection to all the wrong conviction, and then everything changed for the apostle Paul when he saw Christ, did it not? Not only did his life change, his heart changed, and the resurrection became real for him, but he was put on a new mission, a new mission for the Lord. So the question for you is, how are we to have a right hope in the resurrection? How do you know your hope is going to come to fruition? How do you know? How do you know that you're not a lot like the Apostle Paul where you hope in the resurrection, you want the afterlife with God and Christ in heaven, but your convictions are all wrong? Your life is still being lived for you, by you. Look at verse 15. Paul is speaking to Christ now on the road to Damascus. Remember, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, Paul said, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. So he asked, that's the right question. Who's talking to me? And Jesus says, it's me, the one you're persecuting. You talk about aha, silent moments. This would be one. The very one that Paul had for some time been raging against was now speaking to him in the glorious light of God. Now, they had all fallen down. The light was so brilliant, literally blinds Paul. They all fall down the ground. Jesus is not going to give the commission to Paul on the ground. He says, stand up. Look at verse 16. Rise and stand upon your feet, Jesus said. Why? Because the commission was so incredible and so important, he didn't want Paul hearing it on the ground. He said this, verse 16, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen at that moment on Damascus and in those to which I will appear to you again, which Jesus does. And then he said in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm going to protect you to whom I am sending you. You're going out. You're going to be my missionary. So Paul, the great persecutor of the church, blinded by his own sin and his own passion, he sees Christ and everything changes. He saw the light of God, this resurrected Savior, And in that moment, on that dusty road to Damascus, Paul was changed permanently his whole life. He went from being a persecutor of Christ to a servant of Christ, from a witness against Christ to a witness for Christ. In fact, the word that Luke chooses here for servant, it's a a more rare word in the Greek. Josh, you'll love this. It means an under rower. It was someone who actually sat in the bottom of the boat and they would row to keep the boat going. Um, It was someone who was in complete and total submission to their master. And this Paul, Christ is saying to Paul, that's you now. You're my servant. You serve me. How was he going to serve him? He was going to be a witness. He appeared, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus so Paul could go out and say what? I saw Christ. I saw the risen Christ. This was not high theology. This was not the doctrine of the resurrection. This was not talking about Jesus Christ, the second person of the holy triune God, coming down and doing this work. He says, I saw him. And there's an amazing thing. If you see someone that you know is dead, it means what? That they're alive. And that's going to be Paul's testimony. Paul's hope of the resurrection now moves to fact. 
He said, I saw a man who was crucified and buried, and now he's alive, therefore the resurrection I know to be real. And I know it to be Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the one who conquered the power of sin and death. Jesus Christ is the one who rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the one right now who sits upon the throne and what? He grants resurrection hope to all who repent and believe. It's Christ. Now, my beloved, I would argue that anybody who has risen from the dead is in a better position to talk about, teach to, and argue for the resurrection of the dead than someone who has never died. Jesus has that right position, not only because he has risen from the dead, but because he is Lord. He is Lord. So Paul says to Agrippa, God sent me to the Jews and the Gentiles. He sent me, he has protected me, that I might proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to all those who cannot see it, to all those who are blind. And he says, like you, Agrippa, you can't see it either. In fact, no one in that room was able to see the truth of the gospel. Paul was sent for that exact purpose, that others might come out of the darkness and into the light. And the hope of what? Of, of actually living in the light of God, of being forgiven of their sins, of being designated a son or daughter of this glorious king. Look at the latter part of verse 17. Jesus said to Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so this all begins with eyes being opened, truth being revealed, the heart truly believing and seeing for the first time. Paul explains, God opened my eyes to the light of Christ. Now I see, and now I am being sent to open the eyes of others. Now you say, wait a minute, does that mean that Paul had that power? Of course not. Paul's the messenger. God has that power through the Spirit, right? Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it, let alone enter it, unless he's born again. But Paul is to be the messenger of the gospel that brings about repentance and faith. The sight that is so necessary, Paul would bring to those who could not see. And what's so amazing, because this is, this is really the, um, the tipping point. Someone must see in order to be saved, right? As we had a chance to hear from Romans chapter 10, they can't see unless they hear the gospel, and they can't repent unless that gospel is preached, and so we go out and we preach it. Three things will follow if you see. Latter part of verse 18, number one, they'll turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God. My beloved, when the Spirit of God opens your eyes, you're not going to stay in the darkness. You will not stay in the darkness when the Spirit of the living God opens your eyes. You will see that you're in the darkness. You'll see the light of Christ. You'll see the glory of God. You'll see the judgment. You'll say, I'm not staying here. And that's smart. Right? That's the right response to your being able to see by being born again. You'll want to live in the light. You'll want to follow Christ. You'll want to honor God with your life. You'll want to live a holy life in the light. Second thing that will happen, by turning from darkness to light and from Satan to God, the sinner, latter part of verse 18 again, receives forgiveness for their sins, right? So your eyes are opened. You see that you're in the darkness. You see that you're covered in sin. You see the light. You run to the light. You run to God. And what does God do? He forgives you. Oh my goodness, my beloved. He forgives you of every single sin you've ever committed. Every single sin that you committed this morning before you entered this church. Every single sin that you will commit before you see him face to face. God promises to forgive completely, to wash you completely in the blood of Christ. No longer does the barrier of sin stand between you and God. No longer are you afraid of the judgment that is to come. You have been washed. You are clean through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no more guilt. And that means, my beloved, you're set free. When your eyes are open and you flee the darkness and you flee into the light and you flee to God, your sins are forgiven and now you're free. You walk as a free man or a free woman in the blood of Christ. To do what? To live and to love, to serve as the witness of God that he made you to be. It's extraordinary. And then the last one he says, you come out of the darkness, you're forgiven of your sins, 
latter part of verse 18, you get a place among those who are sanctified by faith. You get a place. A place reserved for you. A seat reserved for you as a saint of God in the kingdom of God. Set free. Called out of the darkness into the light. Completely forgiven of all your sins. And you at the table of the living God. What a message that is. That's what God said through Christ to Paul. Paul's eyes were open. Paul experienced this. And then he said, Paul, go tell others. Don't be selfish. Don't hold this to yourself. Paul, the persecutor who hoped in the resurrection but was blind and headed for damnation, became the sinner saved by grace, still now hoping in the resurrection, but now he knows with his eyes open that he no longer dwells in the darkness, that he lives in the light. He knows that he's no longer, his sins have been forgiven, therefore he's no longer condemned. And he knows in Christ he's already seated at the table. Already seated. And so he doesn't seek his own freedom. He seeks the freedom of all those he's talking to in Herod's palace. He seeks for them to see for the first time Christ. So I asked earlier, how can you know that the hope of the resurrection that you have will lead to eternal life? Remember, all are raised from the dead. All are raised. The question is, are you raised to eternal life or are you raised to eternal judgment? How can you know that your hope in the resurrection is not like Paul the Pharisee? How can you know that your convictions, although passionate, how can you know they're not wrong? How can you know that you're not truly persecuting Christ with your life and you truly have a standing in him? I want to encourage you as we close for you to really, really evaluate your heart. In these days, in these last days, the scriptures say, many will turn away. I believe we're in that time right now. Many have turned away. Many still gather, but their eyes have never been opened. Have your eyes truly been opened? Or did at some point in time, before you just say yes, of course, yes, I'm a Christian. Before you just simply say yes to your eyes being opened, be thoughtful so that you don't end up like the Apostle Paul who was convinced his eyes had been opened when he was persecuting Jesus himself. The saints whose eyes have been opened to Christ, listen, you'll hate darkness. You'll hate sin. You'll hate it. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. It doesn't mean you won't stumble in it, but you will hate it. And when you sin, you will confess and you will turn. You'll say, God, forgive me, wash me, and put me on the path of righteousness. If your eyes are open, you'll hate sin, no matter how much you struggle with it. Because you live now in the light of Christ. Are you, my beloved, pushing back the darkness in your life? Are you working hard to mortify the sin in your life? Are you pressing against it? Or are you kicking against the goads by continuing to willfully rebel against God? Do you guard your eyes from dark movies? Do you guard your ears from dark speech? Do you guard your tongue from speaking that which God hates? What about knowing your sins are forgiven? Do you live as a forgiven son or daughter? Do you live with a humble and grateful heart? If you know your sins have been forgiven and it's by grace that they have been forgiven through the blood of Christ, well, that'll create humility and that'll create a gratitude that will define your life. Knowing that your sins have been paid in full by Christ? Or do you take this forgiveness lightly? Perverting the grace of God by continuing in willful, unrepentant sin? Or do you insult the grace of God by trying to earn your forgiveness, by trying to put God in your debt by doing good deeds. What about your standing in Christ? Do you, my beloved, live as the child of God that you are? If you're in Christ, you are a child, sanctified, set apart, part of the family of God. Do you live like that? Or do you live in dishonor to your father, in dishonor to your eternal family by your lack of love, your lack of service, or maybe your lack of self-control. I'll ask you one more, and it's probably the hardest. Are you ready? If there's a seatbelt, throw it on right now. The most pointed question, 
And I think one of the greatest evidences that the, the Apostle Paul had truly been transformed, that his eyes were open, is that he had a new mission in life. Paul's mission changed dramatically. With your eyes open to the truth of the gospel, I want you to ask yourself, honestly, are you on mission for Christ? Are you on mission to open the eyes of the lost in your mission field? When Paul's eyes were opened, his mission in life changed from persecuting the church to what? To growing the church. His, his mission changed from approving, listen, from approving the execution of those who could see to saving from execution those who could not see. That was his new mission given to him by Jesus himself. And one of the best ways, I do believe, to know that you have not fooled yourself into thinking that the resurrection hope is a reality to you is your love for the lost. Do you love the lost? You. Not those who are around you, but you sharing the gospel. You making disciples. You, my beloved, making the effort to pursue those who cannot see. If your eyes have been opened, if they've truly been opened by God in Christ, you will engage the lost in your life because you were blind and now you can see. You were blind, but now in Christ you can see. You know, you know the truth. You know the horrible truth of coming before the living God without the covering of Christ and the eternal judgment to come. You know that. The blind person does not. You know the glory and the majesty of the living God. You know the eternal party that awaits all who are in Christ. You know that those who are blind cannot see it. You know these things. If your eyes have truly been opened, my beloved, you cannot keep them to yourself. You cannot. All the temporal things in this world that still captivate your time and your energies, think about it. All the things you think about, that promotion at work, being entertained, buying things, seeking your own glory, all those things, if your eyes have been opened, do not compare, listen, to the horror of that single soul in your life not being saved. They do not compare. And you know that. Whatever it is you want on this side, think about it for a moment and say, would I give that up for the soul of a friend or a neighbor or a family? It's yes, yes, a thousand times yes, you'd give that up. One soul, one soul made in the image of God, their value is infinitely more worthy of the gospel than that new job, that new house, or that new car. If your neighbor was physically blind and someone, a great physician, gave you medicine to overcome your neighbor's blindness, medicine that you took when you were younger because you were physically blind too, would you sit at home with it? Would you watch TV, plan your retirement, engage in social outings, spend time online, if you had medicine in your possession that you knew your next door neighbor, if they took it, they could see? Would you be okay with your neighbor groping around day after day in the darkness, week after week, year after year? I don't think a single one of you would. I think that as soon as you received that medicine, you would go over the door, you would pound on the door, you might break the door down, you might even pin them down and pour that medicine in their mouth so they could see. And that's just physical the great physician, open your eyes, not only so that you could see and be saved and have the hope of the resurrection become a reality to you, but he opened your eyes because he's put you on mission too. You have a new mission in life if you are in Christ, and that's not building a financial empire. That's not living your best life now. It's not having the greatest social media presence possible. Living for Christ opening the eyes of the lost by bringing the light of the gospel to them. That's your mission, saint. That's your mission. Someone whose eyes have been opened by Christ shared the gospel with you when you were blind. I imagine, if you're like me, they have a very special place in your heart because they did what they had been commissioned to do. 
Because of that, you live in the light of Christ and not in the darkness. Because of that person, through the Holy Spirit, you now have been forgiven of all your sins. Because of that testimony, you now are a son or daughter of the living God. You have a seat in God's kingdom forever and ever. Out of God's love for you and out of your love for Christ, this must be our mission too. If we're going to say we love Jesus and yet not be on mission, we are liars and the truth is not in us. If we're going to say as a church we love Christ and his desire to open the eyes of the blind and we do not share the gospel, then we don't love Christ. Wherever you are, work, school, family, neighbors, standing before a king, like Paul, that's your mission. Whatever you're doing, working, playing, vacation, giving a defense for your life, you're on mission. The souls of those around you should be of primary importance to you regardless of your circumstances. Like Paul, you're a servant and you're a witness. We are his servants and we are his witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's serve and let's witness together as a church for whatever time God gives us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we had a chance earlier today to pray for workers to be sent out into the harvest. That in fact the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few and that has been true throughout the history of your church and is certainly true in this time and in this place. No one denies, Father, that the Bay Area is a dark place. No one denies that most here are blind to the truths of Christ and the gospel. Most would not deny that the church is fall, falling woefully short in bringing that truth to those who cannot see. I pray that it would not be us, Father. I pray that you would ignite in us a deep desire and a right passion for the mission that's been given to us to serve Christ, to be his witnesses. Lord, cause us as a church to rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit to reason with, to teach to, and to proclaim the gospel to all those in our mission field, to those who are here in the Cambrian Park community, that blindness might be cast out, that the light of Christ might be seen, and that many, Lord, many would repent and believe and be saved. Do a mighty work. It requires you, Father, through your Spirit. Use us to that end, I pray, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.